Somehow the Protestant Reformation doesn't seem like a right name to me because it ended up more as a revolution than a reformation. See, the reformers originally just simply wanted to purify the church, to get the church to go back to fundamental biblical truth. What had happened over time, of course, is through time and tradition, error had crept into the church, and men like Luther were saying, we've got to get back to the basic principles. We have to get back to clear biblical truth. And they summed these things up in five little Latin terms. Little Latin won't kill you, right? Sola Scriptura. The Word of God is the final authority in things of faith and practice. Sola Fide. Salvation is through faith alone. It's not Italian. It's Latin. I just want to get that clear. Then we have Sola Gratia. Salvation is by grace alone. Then we have solos Christus, which is salvation is in Christ alone. And then we have solo Deo Gloria, to God be glory alone. Believers everywhere, true believers at all points in time have believed these things, whether they're in Latin or they're in English or they're in French or they are in Whatever they have believed these things. There's one problem with Protestantism. Protestants didn't quit protesting. One of the questions that often comes to you if you're sharing the gospel with a non-believer is why so many denominations? Why so many different churches? It's a good question, right? It's because Protestants didn't stop protesting. And they're still protesting today. The shame is that you can go to churches in Canada now where you can walk in on a Sunday morning and you won't even see one of these things because, after all, it's just the opinion of men, good men, maybe inspirational men. You get the point. You can go to church in Canada, and on a Sunday morning, you can hear something like, you really don't need faith. God's a really, really good God. He loves everybody. And somehow, it's all going to work out. You can go to church on a Sunday morning in Canada, and hear somebody say, you know what, that Jesus guy... He was really, really good. He was a good guy. Great guy. Great teacher. Incredible person. Prototype of what the human being is supposed to be. Son of man, but the son of God thing? I mean, he was pretty godly. But God? And you can walk into a Canadian church on a Sunday morning and hear something about this. It's about your self-development. It's about your self-realization. It's about your self-respect. It's about your self-esteem. It is about your net worth. It's about being healthy and wealthy and all of those things. You can, you can hear 
all of this today in churches. What we're really talking about is that the church at all times, it's kind of like a ship. It needs to be doing course correction all the time. See, if you go back to the New Testament times, you come to a man by the Apostle Paul. One of the things the Apostle Paul is doing is he's actually reforming the very early church. The people believe, at that time were believing the church should look pretty much like the synagogue and it should believe pretty much like the Jews. And Paul is, he's changing that. And of course we come to this, inc- this incredible verse in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. I like it the old way, from faith to faith. Anybody besides me like the old way? I like that better. But anyhow, it's from first, last to last. Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk, and by the way, that verse is so important, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in Romans. He quotes it in Galatians. And the writer of Hebrews quotes it in the book of Hebrews. It is an extremely important text. So think about it this way. In his time, in a sense, Habakkuk is an inspirer of Paul. And Paul is an inspirer of Luther. See, and this verse, this whole idea of a righteousness that comes by faith is part of the whole inspiration of Reformation throughout history. So I want us to turn to this little book of Habakkuk this morning. I love preaching on this book. I'm tempted to do something. I, I have my friend uh, Carmen with me this morning, who is the church administrator at uh, Bethel Church in Kingston, where Marguerite and I spent a wonderful, wonderful year. And, uh, and I was going to preach on Habakkuk one Sunday morning, and Carmen came in and said, Lou, I can preach on Habakkuk. I can do it in three minutes. And during the service, I said, okay, do it. I'm not going to do that here because we got some issues to deal with before we do that. But she could do it, believe me. She did it that day, actually. And then I had to go up and speak after she... I got to speak for 30 minutes about something she just spoke about in three minutes. It, it wasn't really a fair thing. But anyhow, that's, that's how it went down. Habakkuk's name is an interesting name. A lot of people argue about how do you spell it? How on earth do you say it? Habakkuk. Because the cuck is an important thing. That last syllable puts on there that he was not just embrace, embraced. Okay? And the question is, who was he? Some people think because he was embraced that he was the Shunammite woman's son. You remember the Shunammite woman that Elisha used to go and stay in the upper chamber of her house? She wasn't able to have a baby. She asked for a baby and she got a baby. Then the baby died. Then she was a little ticked off. And you remember, she calls Elisha the prophet to come back. And he comes back and he lays on the child and embraces him. So that's why some people think that it's the Shunammite woman's child. It doesn't make much difference to your understanding of the book of Habakkuk, but it's an interesting sidelight. We'll talk a bit about the time in which Habakkuk lived. 
Habakkuk lived in a very, very difficult time. You have two giant countries who are kind of squaring off against one another. You have Egypt, and then you have Assyria. The the Babylonians are not yet on the scene, but they're close. Through duplicity, they will rise to power in a way you can't even imagine, and at a speed nobody expected. In fact, God said to Habakkuk, when it happens, you're not even going to believe it. It's going to be so, so fast. In a very real sense, Habakkuk's time and our time are very similar. Lots of insecurity. Lots of uncertainty. You kind of wake up every day and wonder who's going to push the button, Washington or North Korea. Right? It's a little nerve-wracking. You wonder what's going to happen with Turkey and Kurdistan. You wonder what's happening in Afghanistan. You wonder what's happening in lots of places around the world. It is a very uncertain environment in which we live. Not just politically. I mean, how much do we have to talk over the last four months about floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, cyclones, mudslides? You start wondering, is there any safe place in the world. And it's not even just that, it's it's the morality of our day. Things that were unfathomable, unthinkable only twenty five years ago are like A okay. It's confusing. It is a confusing world in which we live. What do Christians do when they get confused? Well, they do something like Habakkuk does. They say, hey, God, what's going on? Isn't that the question? Yes, like, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. And as you begin reading the book of Habakkuk chapter 1, that's exactly the kind of thing that he's saying. He's saying, God, don't you see what's going on in in this situation? He says, I'm, I'm looking at the world, and I'm seeing idolatry, and I'm seeing injustice, and I am seeing Immorality? I'm, I'm seeing all sorts of things that should concern you. What is happening? You don't hear. I'm telling you every day about it, right? He's basically saying, I was bugging God. I tell God all the time about these. I tell you, but you don't, uh, you don't listen. Don't you see what's going on? Don't you care about what's going on? Ever said those kind of questions? You bet you have. Habakkuk's frustrated. He doesn't understand why a righteous, holy God isn't straightening things out. And God says to Habakkuk, listen, you read it in verses 2, 3, and 4 in chapter 1 of Habakkuk. God says, Habakkuk, let me tell you something. You may be frustrated, but I'm going to do something. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the Babylonians... And Habakkuk says, what? You're going to bring who? I'm going to bring the Babylonians. God, you can't. You can't use the Babylonians. 
they're worse than we are. You know. I mean, that's what he says, right? How can you possibly use those people? Read chapter 2. How can you possibly use those people? They're worse than we are. Whoa. What's God say? He says, Havoc, listen. Write it down. I didn't ask your opinion. Write it down. It's going to happen. You may have to wait a little while, but it's going to happen. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. What I'm saying to you today is absolutely going to happen. See, he's frustrated. He's confused. He's like you. He's like me. You gotta wonder what's happening in the U.S. You gotta wonder what's happening in Canada. You have to wonder what God's thinking about all of the moral degradation. Somebody told me the other night, can you believe that pervert in Holly, whatever his name is, Weinstein, he slept with 200 women. I said, if he was a sports hero like Walt, you know, Will Chamberlain, he couldn't even count. He scored more women than points. We live in a perverted world. How do you do that as a believer? And that's the question that we want to ask today. How does a believer live in a crazy world? And the first answer to the question is Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. <laughs> I can hear the skeptic now saying, oh my goodness. Christians always have their heads stuck in the sand. They always have their heads stuck in the sand. We can put it to the next slide. That'd be great. There we go. That's Christian, you know. If you just kind of ignore it, it will go away. If you wait for it, somehow it'll get better. And the skeptics say, why don't you people get real? Get real. Face the facts. Face reality. But actually, Christians don't have their heads in the sand. They have their heads in the sky. I like this ostrich picture better. They have their heads in the sky. And when I say they have their heads in the sky, here's what changes everything. You can be looking at Babylonians, you can be looking at Judah, you can be looking at Israel, or you can be looking at God. And looking at God changes everything. That's the story that's going on here. And when Habakkuk begins looking at God, all of a sudden things begin to snap into focus. It's an incredible story. He begins talking about the characteristics of God that make everything better. And he says, you know, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, he says this, My God, my Holy One. I like that, don't you? It actually reminds me of another passage of Scripture. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 18. Do you remember God is going to go and he's going to destroy the city of Sodom? And he shares this with his friend Abraham. And Abraham is really concerned about his nephew Lot and his nephew's wife and their two children. And he asks this question. Will not the Lord of the whole earth do what is right? Of course he will. 
That's the whole point. Of course he will. That's all he can do. God is light, says John. In him is no darkness whatsoever. He is always about doing what is right. Hmm. Really? Yeah. He is. And nobody can stop him. Because he's the sovereign God. He's the sovereign God. He has the power to do whatever he chooses, whenever he chooses. I like the way Nebuchadnezzar puts it. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the God of heaven, who moves among the armies of the heavens and the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can say unto him, What are you doing? This is the God who's in control. He is the holy God. He's the sovereign God. And so the second principle, first principle is, if you're going to live in a crazy world, you need to live in faith. Secondly, if you're going to live in a crazy world, you need to focus on God's person, God's power, and his plan. And if you ask this morning, what's the plan of God? It's simple. Here's the plan of God. His plan is twofold. It is to prepare a place for his people. You and I know that as the kingdom of God. Sometimes we call it the kingdom of heaven. The second thing is, he's preparing his people for that place. It's pretty simple when you come right down to it. Preparing the place for his people and preparing the people for his place. And that's how the end of chapter 2 comes about. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him, including Habakkuk, including you, including me, including everybody. God's got it in control. And you say, hmm, okay, but it doesn't look like it. Well, i got to tell you something today. doesn't make any difference what it looks like. It didn't look like it, you know, back in Exodus. There's this nation, this little puny nation called Israel that is in Living in Egypt, they are in slavery and things are getting worse day by day. It doesn't look like they have a snowball's chance and you know where of getting out of Egypt, right? Who would have ever dreamt that in one night, in one night, they're on their way out of Egypt? God's not just going to take him out of Egypt. He's going to take him through the Red Sea on dry ground. The Dead Sea on Red Sea on dry ground. He's going to go further than that. He's going to take him through the wilderness for 40 years. He's going to get him to the promised land. He's going to defeat seven nations more mighty, more powerful than them. It didn't look like it, but it happened. It didn't look like it either in the times of Isaiah. 
And, and the time of Hezekiah. Remember, Sennacherib has a whole city of Jerusalem sounded, and Rapshika is saying bad things about God. He's saying stuff like this. No God ever saved any other nation from our king. You can't overcome us. God says to Isaiah, I want you to tell Hezekiah something. I want you to tell Hezekiah they're not going to shoot one arrow into this city. 120,000 soldiers, not one arrow. And the next morning, 120,000 Assyrian soldiers are dead from plague. It didn't look like it. It didn't look like it when Elisha is surrounded by the Syrian army. You remember the story. The Syrians are trying to attack the Israelites, but the Israelites are never where they think they are because Elisha is always warning them in advance. And the king finally gets smart and he says, okay, we're capturing the prophet. We've had enough of chasing Israel. We're just going to go capture the prophet. They surround his house and his servant looks out and says, oh man, we're surrounded. Elisha looks out and says, they're surrounded and with one word speaks and they're blinded. One man captures the whole army. Don't say it doesn't look like it. God loves those kinds of situations where it doesn't look like it. In chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk has been complaining and questioning But in chapter 3, he meets God. And everything changes. You know, when you meet God, when you really meet God, it's not about North Korea. It's not about the U.S. It's not about Canada. It's not about Turkey. It's not about Afghanistan. It's not about Syria. It's about God. It's about God. And how needs to remember. He needs to remember what this God is like. And so there's this incredible experience with God in chapter 3. you got to read it. I mean, it's an incredible experience he has with God. And he's reminded of the fact of the Exodus. And he's reminded of the long day during the time of Joshua. And he's reminded of the Mount... Uh, Mount... Uh, <clears throat> Hebron, Mount Sinai, shakes and smokes in the presence of God. I can't tell you enough today to read the Bible stories. Read them to yourself. Read them to your children. I read them every night. I read four chapters just before I go to sleep. And mostly I love to read out of Kings and Chronicles and all of those places where you meet God's men who stood up to do something. I love these things. The reminders of to me. And when God's on your side, you're in a great place. I think about David. I think about Jonathan. I think about David's mighty men. I think about the guys back over in the book of Judges. Samson and Gideon and Deborah and Barak. And the stories just go on and on. We remind ourselves of the fact that God's a work. And we need to remind ourselves of those same things in our own lives. I'm going to tell you. Like in 
years ago, in 1992, November, boy, 25 years ago, when I went to Russia, Yanni Gavrilovsky, I spoke no Russian. I didn't know anything. The government was a mess. The oligarchs were fighting for everything. And I was safe as a bug in a rug. Because God took care of me. I went to a country in Central Asia with a friend of mine once. We were holding a church planting, church growth seminar. The person who was doing the logistics for the trip placed us in a KGB resort center. I'm kidding you not. I mean, like, I'm not going to tell you which country because if anybody heard this and said stuff like that, it wouldn't be good for people in that country. We're in a KGB resort center, and it's kind of like God blinded their eyes. We're there having a good time. They're there having a good time, and we're all getting along. This is God. I go in and out of another Central Asian country where I really shouldn't be doing Bible seminars, etc., etc., I'm in, I'm out. It's God's in control. I've been in and out of Egypt three times, three different governments, three crises. Egypt hasn't been a great place for me. But it has been in one way. It's been a constant reminder of the fact that wherever God has you, God can keep you. You need these stories in your life. And that's the third thing. You need to remember the mighty acts of God. That's looking backwards. But you also need to do something else. You need to look to the future. You see, Habakkuk comes to understand that what's going to happen is this. There's a promise. God has made promises, great promises, good promises. And and the promise is incredible. Okay, I'm going to judge you, yes, but I'm not going to destroy you. There is a future. And, and so Habakkuk grabs onto that. You see, he accepts the promise of God. And then he says this over in chapter 3, and starting in verse 16. I heard... And my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation that is invading us. And then the famous lines. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stall, Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And what Habakkuk is saying simply is this. It is never about circumstances. It is always about God. 
I can remember one time I was having a, a big discussion with a seminary president, actually a great guy, Edmund Clowney, president of Westminster Theological Seminary. And we were discussing amillennialism, premillennialism, uh, because Westminster's a big amillennial seminary, and I grew up in a premillennial place. And then I said, you know what, Lou, at the end of the day, here's the deal. Wherever God has a saint, he can keep that saint. Isn't that a great truth? That's what we're talking about today. We live in the middle of chaos. We live in the middle of all sorts of stuff. We get depressed. We get frustrated. We get downcast. The whole deal. Here's the thing. When God finds you in a valley, He can transport you from that valley to the mountaintop. Just like that. You want to live in depression? You want to live in despair? You know, you want to live in all of those kinds of problems? It's a choice you make, but you don't have to stay there. There's a pathway out of the valley. And it's a very, very simple path. Live in faith. Remember God's person and God's power. Right? Remember God's mighty acts. Trust in God's promises. He never, ever fails. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to focus on these truths. You're an incredible God. Holy, sovereign, good. No one can stay your hand. Nobody can stop you. And as Andrea said this morning, we can say, that's my God. My God. My Savior. My Rescuer. My Strength. My Rock. My Fortress. The Psalms tell us that you take our feet out of the clay. And you set us upon the rock. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.